Welcome to The Rock Church and World Outreach Center. We pray that this message will strengthen and encourage you. Now here's a message from one of our special guests. And it is always, always a great privilege, great honor to be at The Rock. And ever since the first time I preached, way back in that other building, uh, right along a highway, wasn't it? And uh, just fell in love with Pastor Jim and Deborah, have since come to fall in love with Pastor Dan and Jess. Give your leaders a great hand. Thank God for faithful men, faithful women, and this great team that they have helping and leading and everybody that's a part of the, uh, the great work that's going on here. Uh, just uh, thrilled to be here. Thank you for the privilege. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. You say, that can get deep. Well, we aren't going to get too deep tonight, but I think we are going to get some real benefit tonight. When you pick up your Bible, you can go to the first chapter, first verse. Uh, when you pick up your Bible and you begin to read it, have you ever stopped to think about your perspective? Whatever you read in Scripture, our natural tendency is to read it from our perspective, uh, from our understanding of where we are. We read the Bible from our own experience. And that's natural, that's normal. Uh, but what, and, and, and we get benefit when, if we just read it from our perspective, from our experience, the Holy Spirit can show us all kinds of things. But um, what if we could, and I think we can through a little study and maybe some help from the pulpit once in a while, I think we can immerse ourselves into the experience of those people who originally received that scripture and perhaps see it through their eyes. Uh, I'm talking about what it would be like to understand the backstory of the Bible and, uh, and really to step into the original shoes of those that heard it for the first time. Tonight what I want to do is take some things from the book of Revelation and I want to share with you what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of the earliest Christians. Have you ever thought about that? You know sometimes when we watch movies about Jesus and this new series that's out called The Chosen, it kind of helps us, if I can say it, use a sanctified imagination of what it would be like to have experienced these things, not from a distance of 2,000 years ago, but what it would be like to experience those things in real time. What would it be like to walk in the footsteps of the earliest Christians? And so tonight, we're just going to start Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, this is what John said. He writes the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation. Now, how many of you know when you're in tribulation, it's good to have a brother and a companion? Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, when you're going through junk, when you're going through garbage, when you're going through the really rough stuff of life, it's kind of good to not be alone. And, and John, uh, he opens this book, and I think the five first words are really the most important when it comes to understanding a little bit about the book of Revelation. He, he calls it the revelation or the revealing 
of Jesus Christ. How many of you know this book is not the revealing of the Antichrist? He shows up, he gets beat, he's out of there. Uh, But this is a revealing of Jesus Christ. He is reigning supreme from start to finish. This book was never meant to instill fear in your heart about dragons and false prophets and beasts and all that type of thing. Yeah, some of that stuff deals, you know, there's, there's some insight on who the enemy is and they rise up for a little bit and ultimately Jesus wins. And because he wins, we win. So he goes on to say in verse nine, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was Where was he? I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So if we're going to walk in the footsteps of the earliest Christians and maybe experience this from their perspective instead of just what we might try to imagine, would you like to see a picture of the island of Patmos? All right, let's put that up if we could. This is the island of Patmos. Is it coming? There we go. Can you see that? Oh, that's right behind me. Uh, The first time I went to Patmos, I thought, man, if somebody wants to exile me here, I volunteer. It's a beautiful island. This is from a little monastery up on top of the island. And uh, I was there in March when I took this picture and uh, springtime, so everything's nice and green. But you can be there at other times of the year, late in the summer where it's pretty brown. It's probably like California, is that right? And uh, so, you know, it wouldn't always be pleasant, but that's where John was. It's about 40 miles off the coast of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea. And uh, John was exiled there probably 18 months. And, and it may look like it, was, it, it is a beautiful place, uh, but they didn't put him there so he could enjoy the sound of the ocean and, and you know, some peaceful solitude. Uh, they put him there for one simple reason, to shut him up. They did not want him uh, preaching the word of God. They did not want him speaking the word of God. As a matter of fact, he says, I was on the island, verse 9, that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so they put him there uh, as a political prisoner, as an enemy of the state uh, to shut him up so that he would no longer be able to communicate the word of God so that he could no longer influence the Christian community. But you know what? How many of you know God always has the upper hand and God always has the final word? Because the emperor put him out there to shut him up and Jesus shows up and says, John, write this stuff down. And today we have the book of Revelation because of it. So let me just show you real quickly a little map. If we could, uh, I wanna, want you to see where this was. Um, everybody see Rome in the upper left-hand corner? I always tell the Mediterranean, I look for the boot, right? How many of you look for the boot? 
And once you know where Italy is, you kind of know the rest of the Mediterranean. Next to it to the right is Greece. And the area where there's some yellow, that today is the nation of Turkey. And uh, you see about 8.30, if you can imagine that as a clock, you see that little pink box that says Patmos? That's where John was. And uh, the, the rest of the churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation are in that other yellow area and kind of a circular road, you know, connected them and that type of thing. Uh, but enough of that. We don't, you didn't come here for a geography lesson tonight. But who sent John to the island of Patmos? Well, we pretty much know who sent it. And I want to go to another picture of a Roman emperor now, we don't have an actual picture of him, but the big statue to the left, uh, that is the guy that in the mid-90s of the first century, his name was Domitian, and he sent John to the island of Patmos. All we have today is the head and the neck, what they call it the bust, and his left forearm. But that was a statue that was in Ephesus, which was kind of the leading city of that circle of cities that I showed you. And uh, Domitian is the emperor who sent John to the island of Patmos. That statue would have been 27 feet high. You know, when they take the dimensions and think how big the whole thing would have been. And it stood right there at a temple. You say, why, why was his statue at a temple? Because he was kind of nutty and he declared himself Lord and God. And he wanted everybody to call him Lord and God. And if you did not address him as Lord and God, it could cost you up to your life. Well, how many of you know the early Christians refused to call anybody Lord except Jesus? And they would be good citizens and they would obey the laws and they would pay their taxes. Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are, but render unto God the things that are God's. So the Christians, uh, they, they would not engage in uh, the worship of uh, Domitian. A lot of people think, we're talking about walking in the footsteps of the earliest Christians. A lot of people think that the Christians were persecuted because they loved and worshiped Jesus. And, and, but let me clarify that. Christians were not persecuted because they worshiped Jesus. The people back then, the Greeks, the Romans, they were what we call polytheistic meaning they had hundreds of gods. And if you happen to add a god, Jesus, and say, hey, I'm worshiping Jesus, they might have said, well, that's great. Uh, we worship 12 gods in our house. There's no problem. The problem was not that they worshiped Jesus. The problem was they refused to worship the other gods. They refused to worship the gods of the Roman pantheon and, and they specifically refused to worship uh, Caesar as God. And so that was a real problem. By the time that John was on the island of Patmos and he had been sent there by that emperor that we talked about, Domitian, 
all of the other early leading Christians, I'm talking about the ones who first walked with Jesus and, and most of the early, early leaders, they'd already been put to death. And we're talking about what it's like to walk in the footsteps of the earliest Christians. So let's just go down the list real quickly. James, the brother of John, had been put to death by the sword in Jerusalem under Herod. We read about that in Acts 12. Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel he was worthy to be crucified the same way Jesus did. Uh, he was crucified under the emperor Nero. Andrew, Peter's brother, died by crucifixion on an X-shaped cross. Bartholomew and Thomas, two of the original 12 disciples, they had both been put to death in India where they had taken the gospel. Thomas, uh, I, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Bartholomew and Thomas. Uh, Matthew had been killed with an axe in Ethiopia. Paul had been beheaded under Rome, uh, under Nero, about the same time uh, that uh, Peter had been put to death. James, the Lord's brother, the author of the book of James, uh, had been beaten to death in Jerusalem. Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, had been dragged to death in the streets of Alexandria, Egypt. Timothy, uh, Paul's assistant, had been stoned and beaten to death in the streets of Ephesus. And so here's John. All the other people that had been his co-workers and co-leaders in the body of Christ had been put to death. And we are told by history that John is the only one of the original band that uh, died a natural death. And he did so at a very, very old age. But here he is banished to the island of Patmos. I want you to remember this. If you're ever inclined, if you're ever tempted to doubt, is all that stuff true? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he really appear to those disciples after his crucifixion? Did they really see him ascend into heaven? Let me just put it this way. All of those people that we just talked about who died by crucifixion, by beatings, by spears, by beheading and so on, every single one of them could have saved their natural life simply by saying, it's really not true. Jesus was not really raised from the dead. Every one of them could have saved their life, but they went to the death trusting in God, knowing that Jesus Christ, they had seen him die, they had seen him resurrected, they had seen him ascended into heaven, and they would rather die than say, it's not true. So here is Domitian trying to shut this gospel down, trying to silence the word of God. And he puts John on this island. And here's what we read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11. Uh, Jesus appears to him and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Do you know what that means? I'm the A and I'm the Z. He says, I am the first and the last. 
what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, which was the province of what is modern day Turkey, uh, which are in Asia to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Let's look at that map one more time. Let's look at the map that shows uh, those, uh, there's Patmos off the coast, there's those seven churches. And honestly, when I was young and just reading the Bible, I mean, those, you might as well have said to Timbuktu and to Funky Town and, you know, who knows where, you know, because those names meant nothing to me. But you know what it would be like today is, you know, Jesus appearing to somebody and saying, hey, take Take a letter, write a letter, and send it to the spiritual leaders of San Bernardino, Riverside, Rancho Cucamonga, Fontana, Corona, Anaheim, and Chico. I mean, you understand, those are just towns, you know, located around here and that type of thing. But I want you to see, what we're talking about what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of the earliest Christians, you know there's persecution. You know there's people that hate the Christian message. You know there's people that hate the Christians. And yet in all of these cities, because people are hungering for life, people want to know reality. They, people know how corrupt the world is. And people know how much craziness and dishonesty and, and dysfunction there is in the world. And they're looking, and not that any of us as Christians are perfect. How many of you are still growing? But God started something in our life. I'm not going to get up here and say, I've achieved perfection, but I'm going to say this, I'm not everything I'm going to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. God's doing a work in my life. He's doing a work in your life. And we're still growing. But I'll tell you what, we're part of the right family. We're part of the family of light. We're part of the family of life. We have hope because we have a God who not only reigns in heaven, but who lives on the inside of us. And he's in us to empower us, to indwell us, to give us wisdom by the Holy Spirit. And um, so, so what are these towns, Ephesus and so on? Let, let me just show you a couple pictures real quick. Uh, this is Ephesus. Uh, that's the library of ancient Ephesus. Now, can you see in the lower right-hand corner uh, those two little arches? Can you see those? That's, the library is the big thing in the middle. Uh, but off to the right, you know what those arches were? Those were the entrance to the marketplace. That, that, that area, when you walk through those, it's huge. That in Ephesus, that was one of, I think, two major marketplaces where it was like an outdoor mall and just shops and you'd buy anything in that marketplace. But to get into that marketplace, you had to go through the two arches. Do you know what happened in John's day? When Domitian was the emperor and he wanted to be called Lord and God, they set up little altars right there. Little altars and, 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 and based on where you're standing, if you are walking into the marketplace, over your right shoulder up that way 
would have been the statue, the 27-foot statue of Domitian. It's meant to intimidate. And before you could walk into those gates, they had a little altar there, and there were people watching, and you had to, to get entrance into the marketplace, you had to take a pinch of incense and throw it on the little flame, and they had to hear you say, Caesar is Lord. And if you did that, you could go into the marketplace, buy and sell. But if you would not say Caesar is Lord and offer that incense, which was an act of worship, you couldn't go in. This is what the early Christians dealt with. Not all the time, but at one point in Ephesus history, but, but that was the city that is Ephesus. Um, real quickly, uh, the next picture is uh, just part of the ancient marketplace of Smyrna. That was one of the seven churches. The next is uh, Pergamum. Uh, that's a great theater, very steep theater built into the hillside. Uh, in its day, that seated around 15,000 people who would come for performances and things like that. Thyatira, uh, not much left, just some ruins. There's actually, they kind of built a modern city over the ancient ruins of Thyatira. Um, Sardis, uh, one of their temples there in the foreground and uh, just uh, pretty massive stuff there. Um, after that, Philadelphia, I uh, believe some of the gates of the city from ancient Philadelphia. And finally, Laodicea. And uh, so, so these places were real places where real Christians lived. And, and the, the, the church that they were born again into was a church that lived in a really hostile world. They were in the world, but they were not of the world. So Paul started the church in Ephesus in the uh, mid-50s, and about 40 years later, John is living in Ephesus, is sent to the island of Patmos, and Jesus appears to John and says, take a letter to the seven churches in that particular region. And we see on the screen here uh, just the gist of what had happened in, in those 40 years. Uh, Ephesus, if we could pop that up on the screen, uh, Ephesus had become strong in doctrine. They were good with teaching, but boy, they were struggling with love. They weren't loving each other very good, and, and they were in danger of losing their influence. Isn't it something? They had great knowledge, but they had really slipped in the area of loving God and loving people. Can I tell you something? The world is not impressed with what we know. The world is not impressed with our intelligence and our theories and our, our theologies. The world is moved by love. And Jesus said, you're falling down in the area of love. And he said, if you don't repent, you're going to lose your candlestick or your light, your influence in the world. The church at Smyrna, just 40 miles up the road, was facing great persecution. And they were encouraged to be faithful until death. Pergamum, they were living in the midst of great idolatry. 
And they were struggling to stay doctrinally pure. There were some false doctrines that were trying to corrupt the church from within. Thyatira had some corrupt leadership that was causing real problems in an otherwise wonderful church. The next slide, we talk about Sardis. They had a great reputation. Everybody thought they were wonderful, but Jesus said, you're dead. How many of you know just because you impress people doesn't necessarily mean that you impress God? They had a great reputation, but God said you're dead. They were in profound need of repentance, of turning back to God with all of their heart, with all of their life. The church at Philadelphia, they were the faithful few uh, there were, that was a real genuine remnant of, of faithful believers. And, and finally, the church at Laodicea uh, was a proud, lukewarm, and what we might call a useless church. They weren't, they weren't all in for God. They weren't totally living in the world. They just kind of had one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And that's an amazing, Jesus said about that church, behold, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. What on earth is Jesus doing locked outside of the church? He's supposed to be in the middle of the church. But he said, even though this church, Jesus said, you're so lukewarm, I'm just gonna put it the way, it, it, he said, you make me wanna vomit. But he said, but if you'll open the door, I'll come in. And I'll fellowship with you. Jesus didn't rebuke them because he hated them. He rebuked them because he loved them. And he wanted them to come back to him with their whole heart. Be totally committed to him. So these churches, some of them were facing persecution. We're talking tonight about what would it be like to walk in the footsteps of the early Christians. Sometimes we think... We're really, man, somebody's persecuting me. Well, why? Because somebody said something mean about my tweet. I'm so persecuted. <laughs> Poor thing. Let me tell you the persecution that the early church dealt with. Christians could be denied employment. It happened a lot. Not only could they be denied employment from the onset, but if, they, if it was found out they were a Christian, they could be fired from their jobs, especially if they worked in any kind of governmental role, including the army or the Senate. In some cases, we alluded to this earlier, Christians could be denied entrance to the marketplace if they refused to offer incense to an image of the emperor and utter the phrase, Caesar is Lord. Church buildings could be demolished or confiscated and copies of scripture destroyed. Church leaders could be singled out for imprisonment, torture, or banishment from society. I don't know about you guys, I think it's so, I just love being a minister. I just love being a preacher of the gospel. But in that day, what that meant was if problems come, you're the number one target. They're coming after you first. Christians sometimes faced execution and they were killed by the sword, the spear, crucifixion, fire, drowning, wild beasts, and through countless other heinous, 
cruel and sadistic methods. I hope nobody, no, you're not getting depressed, are you? No, we, we didn't share this to be negative or depress you. I, I just want you to know what our spiritual ancestors went through to be faithful. The, the, the church was not born in the midst of ease and comfort and pleasantness. The church was born in the midst of hostility and adversity and fire. The forces of hell, this is what I want you to understand, the forces of hell could not stop the church then and the forces of hell cannot stop the church today. Jesus said, I will build my church now, he's not building man's church. He's not building something that, you know, people philosophically think, well, this is how it should be. No, Jesus said, I will build my church. That's what we want to make sure, that we're his church, that we're honoring him as the Lord and the head of the church. That means he and his word are the authority upon which we build and base our lives. It's the authority, his word is the authority, not human sentiment, not what we think we have figured out about how things should be. What does the word of God say? What does the Bible say? Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell, all the powers of hell will not prevail against the church. I wanna make a connection to today. You know, we're, we're looking at what it was like for the earliest Christians. Let me ask you a question. Do you think more Christians are being persecuted today or are more Christians being persecuted in the first, second, and third centuries? We're inclined to say that more Christians were persecuted back then. Do you know why we say that? Because we're Americans. We forget about the rest of the world. Unless we're specifically reminded. Can we go with that next slide, please? The Center for the Study of Global Christianity estimates, and this is a very good organization. It's based out of Gordon-Conwell Seminary up near Boston. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity estimates that there have been over 70 million Christians martyred in history. Over half of these were in the 20th century. 35 million in the, in the 20th century. And it was primarily under fascist and communist regimes. In the early 21st century, we estimate that on average over the 10-year period from 2000 to 2010, there were approximately 100 million Christians killed each year. The first decade of this century, one million Christians killed. There are far more Christians, and we have to keep in mind, in the Roman Empire, which is where Christianity first flourished, it, there weren't that many people back then. 
I think about 60 million people lived in the Roman Empire in, in the first century, average, you know, at, at a given time. How many people live in California? 40 million? So the whole Roman Empire had, I'm not good at math, what is that? Okay, 20 million more than just the whole state of California. So there weren't even that many. If 10% of the population were Christian back then, so that means there were 6 million Christians. 6 million Christians. Think about today, there's hundreds of millions of Christians around the world today, and I'm not going to start naming names of countries, but you can probably imagine countries where you can be killed just for having a Bible. You can be killed just for assembling to pray and things like that. So here's a question for you. If Christians are so despised and so persecuted, why not just give up on Christianity? Why not just say, you know, Christianity's a bad idea. And here's the reason. Because Jesus continues to catch the hearts and the minds of men and women who want truth, who want forgiveness, who want meaning, who want reality, who want life. I told you that we were going to be looking in the book of Revelation, and obviously we don't have time to go hyper in depth, but did you know that throughout the book of Revelation, if you don't remember anything else tonight, remember that Revelation 1, 1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. I remember when I read the book of Revelation as a teenager, scared the fire out of me. Because I wasn't reading it from a perspective of faith. Number one, I was really concerned that Jesus would come back. I, I read the late great planet Earth. How many of you remember that book? I was really concerned that Jesus would come back before I got my driver's license. <laughs> I was 15 years. He did not come back before I got my driver's license. But I read that book and was scared of the Antichrist and scared. I didn't read it from a perspective of faith. And I wasn't seeing Jesus in the book of Revelation. I was seeing all this peripheral junk stuff that was happening, but I somehow didn't catch that, yeah, that stuff happens, but Jesus prevails over all of it. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. He's the alpha and omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is Lord. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He's the Son of Man. He's the one who lives and was dead and is alive forevermore. He is the Son of God. He is the Amen. He is the ruler of God's creation. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the heir to David's throne. He is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. 
He is the king of the nations. He is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. He is faithful and true. He is the word of God. He is Christ and he is the bright and morning star. Every single one of those, every single one of those titles, they're all sprinkled throughout the book of Revelation. And while the kings and the rulers of the earth are plotting their agendas and that type of thing. See, here's what made John different. Um, probably, I'm, I'm sure probably some Christians lived in fear in the first century. They had some, you know, reasonably speaking, they had some reasons to be afraid. They, they could lose everything, but, but Jesus kept saying, don't be afraid, fear not. See, Christians who were young and maybe not real strong in their faith, man, they'd look up at that 27-foot statue of Domitian and say, oh, he's big. Because they compared themselves with that 27-foot statue. And they thought, man, I, I, he, he's bigger than me. But John and the mature disciples looked at that 27-foot statue and said, that is nothing compared to Almighty God. That, that is nothing. That, earthly kings come, earthly kings go, earthly empires come, earthly empires go, but Jesus is the one who was and is and is to come. He's the Alpha. He was before our problems. He's the omega. He will be after our problems. The mature ones knew that that 27-foot statue and the people behind it were nothing compared to the power of God and the power of the name of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. One final verse, and we're going to close. Revelation 19:11. John says, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. See, in the Gospels, we get this picture of Jesus. He's carrying the little lamb. He's so tender and loving, and he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest of your souls, for your souls. And you know what? That's 100% accurate. If you're hurting, if you're struggling, if you're lonely, you can come to him. And he is meek and lowly of heart. But when it comes time to wrap up business on earth when it's time for him to come back he's not coming back as the suffering servant he did that and he offers us all that compassion but when he comes back the next time he's coming back he's faithful and true in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes, this is John seeing what we have not seen yet, but will happen. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were 
many crowns. Just one crown is not enough for him because he's Lord, he's supreme, he's majestic, he's ruler. He'll reign forever and ever. So what's it like to walk in the footsteps of the early Christians? Well, we know a little bit of history and boy, we can appreciate the challenges they face, but you know what? We're born again just like they were. We're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ just like they were. John said to them, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. And you know what? The Holy Spirit says that's, a, that's just as true for you today as it was for them. Greater is he that is in you. We have the same Jesus. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same host of angels. We have the same new birth. We have the same infilling of the Holy Spirit. What's it like to walk in the footsteps of the early Christians? It, it, in a sense, it's just like walking with Jesus today. We have the same Savior. We have the same promises. We have the same Spirit of God we're just a little further down the road than they were. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the privilege and the honor of being your children tonight. Thank you, Lord, for those of us that have come to the fountain and, and partaken of, of the river of life. Lord, it's so good to get delivered from our old life, from our old, the past and all the sin and all the junk and all the condemnation. It's so good to come to that river and be totally cleansed and totally forgiven. Lord, not one of us are going to heaven because of how good we've been, because none of us have been good enough. The Bible says we've all sinned, we've all come short of the glory of God. Not one of us is going to heaven because of how perfect we've been, because none of us have been perfect. Not one of us is going to heaven because of how religious we've been. Because you can't be religious enough. There's only one type of person and one type of person only that's going to be with God and be in heaven with him. And that is a forgiven person. And God, you're the one that offers forgiveness. And so you're the one that prescribes how it's given. Thank you for listening to the Rock Church and World Outreach Center. If this message spoke to you, please share it with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find more information at www.rockchurch.com.